Support for this podcast comes from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary and their Doctor of Ministry program. The Risking Faithfully Disruption is Revelation and Resurrection Doctor of Ministry cohort at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary is more than a degree program. Together, this cohort will form fugitive space, welcoming radical reimagination of church and world. Offered in partnership with the Ministry Collaborative, this cohort begins in February 2021. Financial aid and scholarships are available for those who qualify. Visit www.pts.edu slash D-M-I-N. Welcome to AIJCast, a podcast featuring conversations and performances at the intersection of art, inspiration, and justice. I'm your host, Marthame Sanders. On this episode, part two of our conversation with Taria Camerino. Taria is a chef, an artist, and a synesthete. And if you don't know what that is, I recommend you go back and listen to part one of our conversation. Taria spoke with us from her home in Atlanta. We pick up our conversation with an intriguing statement that Taria made in part one. When you say liquor, black licorice tastes like fear, mm-hmm. is that unique to Taria or is that something that other folk with gustoral synesthesia would recognize? It's interesting. I don't know how unique it is to me. I have read about and even met other gustoral synesthetes and they do experience differently mm-hmm. than I do, but I have done such a deep dive into food. Yeah. I've studied in many countries. I've studied so many techniques. I started my career classic French training because I wanted this particular type of foundation. But since then, I've studied so many different types of cuisines so that I can understand the vibrational essence. Mm. It's one thing for me to say, oh, it tastes like Oreos. It doesn't actually taste like Oreos. It tastes like powdered sugar, hydrogenated fat, black cocoa powder. It tastes like bleached flour. It tastes like fake vanilla, which has its own layer of flavor, Mm. each one of those things. And so for myself, I've done such a deep dive in understanding flavor that though gastrol synesthetes do interpret things from their perspective, because you can only express something that you know, If all you've ever eaten is Oreos, but you've never actually worked with black cocoa powder, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. know that that's a very specific kind. So for myself, I think it is personal to me, but also extremely educated. There is a thing that isn't tangible that we experience all the time. Interestingly, taste is one of those things. Yeah. Just like sound and what we see, light, all of that, they're not tangible. We think it's tangible because we chew, we eat, it's matter. But taste itself, another thing that's interesting, right? So taste, everyone talks about the olfactory. And I think the reason why I was brought to kind of work with patients and helping to understand flavor the way that I do is because it is the subtle aspect. So olfactory is important, but Mm -hmm. I can taste anything and not have to smell it. Right. And have no sense of smell because taste resonates in the body. 
mm. on a subtle level. Mm. Right. So that is not a tangible physical thing. It's not just about chewing and the palate on the tongue or the roof of the mouth. There is um, a vibrational essence to everything. So it's more than just the absorption of the right kinds of proteins and all that stuff right. into the body to give it fuel, which is that utilitarian piece. Right. But I think most people don't experience that. Hmm. And that's probably why. And that's just lack of training. It's not hmm. because they can't. The same way learning to listen to music and the types mm -hmm. of music mm -hmm. we listen to, right? You can develop that quality yeah. and really start to understand it. And I do think that the spirituality part plays into that, right? So the more we learn to be still with the things we're engaging with, the more we perceive from them. Mm -hmm. If we're not finding stillness in our experience so that we can, I say, listen, hear, experience things in its entirety. I mean, we, we can't experience right. things in their entirety. We're limited. We're human, right? Like we have a limited aspect of our expression, but we can practice. Mm -hmm. And using taste as one of those ways, learning to listen to music or to see a painting and to see the layers that go into that painting. It's the same. One of the things that sticks with me from that moment at Okori's show was how the care and deliberation that I took to eat the chocolate. This was not my usual, <laughs> I am a fast eater. <laughs> I love foods, I love tastes, I love complex combinations, but I don't savor often. Mm. And I savored just the very thought of the deliberation that went into it between you and Okori gave me enough of a pause that I wanted to be deliberate in honoring that gift. And there was a stillness in that moment. There was a mm. sacredness. There was a holiness in that moment that was beyond anything that I could express. And yeah, you probably watching me, you probably could have seen it <laughs> impacting me in ways that I would never be able to identify. I am grateful that I can see that in people and they don't necessarily know what's happening to them. Yeah. But that's not to mean that they can't know. It, yeah. That just takes practice. Yeah. It's like getting to know pain. Yeah. Right. The layers and complexities of pain and how we have such an aversion to pain. I've experienced a lot of pain in my mm. life, like physical pain, mm -hmm. lots of surgeries, and I have a lot of metal in my mm. body. And so experiencing that and understanding if we don't run from the pain, there's all these nuances mm -hmm. of it. And I think that that's the same with all things that we experience. And with taste, if you just do it again and again and again, it's like studying wine. You first start drinking wine. I don't actually drink wine. It overwhelms me. Mm. Um, all I have to do is smell wine. And I'm like, yeah, that was awesome. Mm. Um, but if I drink it, then I'm completely overwhelmed by the experience. Mm. So understanding that we can practice in that stillness yeah. so that we start to know what's happening to us. What is the exchange that's happening? How are we being moved? Hmm. But that's in everything. Yeah. Right? There's a natural inclination and then there's a discipline that comes about through repeated <clears throat> practice. Yeah. One thing that I would love to riff with you about is communion. You and I have talked about, again, in our pre-interview about religion, spirituality, and then, and we come from very two different places in that. And yet, for me, there is this amazing piece of the Christian practice of communion, of gathering around a table or higher churches in front of an altar, 
and these words that are recited where Jesus breaks bread and gives it to his disciples and says, take, eat, this is my body broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. And then takes the cup and pours the wine and says, this is my blood shed for you and for many, do this in remembrance of me. And there are a variety of interpretations of what that means in terms of the different doctrines and things like that. But I would love to just hear you as someone who experiences the world in this incredible way, what do you sense in that story? What is your sense of what is happening, what might be happening in the practice itself, in the institution of it, in the story? It's certainly multi-layered. Gandhi once said, there are some people so hungry that God can only appear in the form of bread. Right. So I think that that's important to note, not just because of hunger, but there is a particular type of hunger. And I do think that as a humanity, we are hungry for spirituality, Mm. but deep spirituality. Mm. And it's not the mind, right? The mind comes up with all kinds of, as you said, interpretations. But in the body, we are dealing with such instinctual responses things that we can understand and things that we may not yet. And for my interpretation, or like, I guess the way that I see that particular story is, I mean, the truth is it is his body. Hmm. I, for me, there would be, it would be non-different. There would be no separation. And when one can become still and experience that, so it's a consecrated experience at that point, the bread becomes something else. Hmm. It is no longer bread. And he can do that because he is a mystic, Hmm. because he is God. Hmm. And at that point, he changes. I mean, this is truly how I believe this. I'm not godlike, but I have changed the molecular structure of food, so I know that it is possible. Hmm. But at that point, he's now changed bread. It doesn't exist as bread any longer. And when we eat consecrated food, when we eat food that has been prepared with that kind of level of attention and goal of transforming the subtle experience of who we are as humans, we become different. Mm. So as an art form, my field is the only one where I become a part of your body. Mm. You eat what I make, I am now a part of your cellular makeup. Mm. If I don't handle that well, if I'm careless with that, that's a form of violence, mm. right? And anytime I've taught any teaching I've done for any of my students or employees, that's the first lesson is to hold food in a particular sacred way because whatever we're thinking about, whatever our attention is on while we're preparing this food, it goes into the food. Mm. It holds that space. So in that idea of communion, I mean, personally, Every time we eat, it should be an act of communion. Mm. And if it was, we would be much more selective about the foods we choose. So eating is a sacred act. As is preparing food. Yeah, yeah. As is growing food. As is sharing food. You very casually mentioned that you have changed the molecular structure of food. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just a quick aside and then moved on. (laughs) Please elaborate. What what do you mean by that? Okay, Um, a good example. And this will be really interesting. Water is the highest carrier. Of all things, water carries the highest vibration. Mm. The water you choose to drink, is it still? Did it sit in a copper pot? 
what is in the water. But because it carries such a high vibration, and I'm going to tell you, I didn't know I had this capacity mm. when I was a young baker. I had no idea. And I didn't go to school to do food. Right. I did an apprenticeship. So I learned under a chef, and I was very specific about that. And when I would ask questions of why, he would just say, because this is how you do it. And, <laughs> and so I learned all of these things. I never used thermometers hmm. when I was test, you know, doing sugar work. I just used my hand and water. But one time, I'm making pie dough. And we all know that when you add water to the pie dough, the water activates the gluten in the flour. And so you don't want to overmix it at that point. And we all know this, but I've never thought about any of those things. I, whatever, I can do whatever I want. I'm working with a new employee. They're making pie dough. The gluten is starting to get really tight. And I was like, oh, okay, let me fix it. So I take a handful of water and I throw it in the bowl. And she says, you can't do that. And I was like, yeah, I can, watch. We turn the mixer on and it just relaxes. And rather than getting tight, it relaxes. And in that moment, I realized that the water was no longer water. It was whatever I wanted it to be. Hmm. And I wanted it to be light and relaxing. Right in that moment, I knew that what I was doing was different. And so when I would teach people, I would teach them, here are the rules. If you don't want to always follow the rules, you can do it this way. But this is going to take a lot of work because you have to listen. You have to become so still within yourself that you can now hold that energy to transform it into what you want it to be. Hmm. Taria Camarino on AIJCast. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment, but first, a quick word. As always, I encourage you to visit our website, AIJCast.com, which is a great place to find out more about our artists, including their news, information, and products. One place I encourage you to spend some time is our shop. Among the items you'll find there is Taria's book, Fearless Innovation, Atlanta's Food Story, and also the music of Okori Johnson, whom we talked about in the first half of this episode. There's a lot there by other talented artists as well, so we encourage you to look around. And you can find all of this and so much more on our website. Again, it's AIJCast.com. And now back to more of our conversation with Taria Camerino. I tempered chocolate. My relationship to chocolate is very special. Chocolate has a vibration all to itself and it's powerful and strong. I had lost my sense of taste after a violent robbery mm -hmm. several years ago and I basically went blind. I couldn't taste anything. I couldn't pick up on any flavors. I didn't know what I was gonna do for my career. I had no idea how to function. And it was my relationship to chocolate that changed all of that for me. And I would never use a thermometer for tempering chocolate. Um, do you know what tempering chocolate no. is? Okay, so you temper chocolate the same way you temper steel. Uh, there are crystals. There are six stages of crystals in chocolate and you have to melt all of them and then they have to form in a particular way mm. so that they stack accordingly and that's how they become strong. Mm. So a good piece of chocolate, a piece of chocolate that has been, they now call it recrystallized, has been tempered properly, snaps. Mm. And that's because the crystals have been stacked. If that has not been done properly, it melts faster and it just kind of falls apart. Right. Same with steel. And I've always taught to use the bottom part of my lip to know what my temperature was. Hmm. And I have my shop. I have to do all of this baking. 
I have all these customers that are going to come to support me. And all I want to do is temper chocolate. And I'm doing this. I did it the first time. It didn't work. The second time, I'm like, what is happening? Up until that point, I had always controlled the energy in the bowl. Hmm. But I'm standing here and I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm having this experience with this chocolate. And I'm like, what do you need from me? What do you want? And I just let everything go. And all of a sudden, the information and the energy just moved back and forth between me and this bowl of chocolate. And after four tries, it went right into temper. And I made chocolates for hours. Everyone shows up to buy pastries and they come in and I'm like, I don't have any pastries for you. All I have is chocolate because this happened. But now I can taste again. And the only way I was going to be able to learn it was through surrender. Wow. I had to surrender to the understanding that everything we do in life is a give and take. It's a back Mm. and forth. It's not one-sided. When we cook, when we make music, there's always movement coming back and forth. That, to me, ties into the very essence of communion as well, this notion that it's not just there for us to take it's the give and take of it It, it, the word communion itself which is again these are they're all doctrinal reasons behind all of these things but communion is community it's there it's a gathering of people um so there has to be a give and take for it in order for it to be authentic there's beauty how wonderful is that actually yeah because i didn't actually know that about the word and the truth is for me as someone who uses food to communicate if there's no one to eat it, yeah, yeah, I, I don't. I, what do I do? I have. It's just going to rot. Yeah, you have hinted <laughs> at this, and I think this also makes sense given the conversation we're having to uh, talk about this now. But how food sovereignty and social justice figure into your life, mm. and how that all connects. Honestly, because I taste everything, I taste everything. It's not just like, oh, that's delicious. I taste the pans of the people who pick food, who grow food. I taste the soil. I taste the water. I taste the sun or lack thereof. This has been an experience my whole life. I did not understand it uh, when I was younger because food systems were just what they were. You didn't even know to question it. And and there is a voice in my own head that I hear in the midst of this, and I'm sure you hear this, of that can't be real. This is only your imagination. That's not really <laughs> happening, right? Yeah, I did not actually know that that was real. But I, I've had confirmations uh, that happen mm-hmm. periodically in my life where I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't take much to find out that the chocolate industry is dirty. Right. You know, it's not, you don't have to do a deep dive, at least not anymore. Yeah. When I was younger in my career, I essentially knew that I just made rich people fat. I, didn't, I wasn't feeding anybody who was hungry. Yeah, That's a hard thing for someone who genuinely cares about humanity. And what I did know is that if I was going to do that, I had to at least make sure that I wasn't causing any harm. Mm. The sugar industry, I grew up in Florida, and the sugar industry down there is horribly corrupt and you can see it. It's obvious. So noticing that more and more and being able to taste this, I moved into the ethics of chocolate because chocolate, everyone eats it. Hmm. Everyone, right? So it's a very easy thing for us to start paying attention to. And I was buying cacao from a woman who found her way to me. I don't know 
who sent her to me. She found out I was some weird woman buying obscure chocolate <laughs> and she brings me this really rough chocolate that nobody could eat it's a hundred percent it's you know what are you going to do with it and she has a small farm in ecuador and i opened the bag and it was i just all i had to do was smell it and it was so overwhelming that i i, I brought tears to my eyes everything mm. opened up and i said that I wanted to make some truffles for her to take back to all of the farmers. So I had to put it down for 24 hours because I could not get too close to it. It was so powerful. Mm. The next day I sit with it and I'm tasting it and I could taste, I tasted hibiscus flowers. I tasted the rain. I could taste the sun and how it was falling. I tasted the people. I tasted goat milk. Mm. So I made this truffle and she comes back so that I can, she can send it down to everyone who grew it. And I tell her all of these flavors and she's like, that's incredible. Do you know that every day we sit on the hillside under the hibiscus and watch the sunset? And I was like, huh, okay. So I am not crazy. <laughs> and so wow. being able to have these kind of things that have confirmed yeah. for me, yeah. that this is something that I experience yeah. on a regular basis. And then knowing how to take that experience and try my hardest. I can't say that I succeed all the time, but to try my hardest for people to, I might cry, mm. to experience just a fraction of the beauty that exists in our food, mm. if we're willing to pay attention and the violence that exists in our food systems if we're willing to pay attention. Mm. And the thing that I don't think people have really come to terms with is that what we put into our bodies, children specifically, I have made every single thing that my children have eaten since they were born because I knew that if I was going to participate in the system that existed, that I would be harming them because I would be feeding them violence. Mm. And when we're fed violence repeatedly, it changes our ability to see, to make conscious good choices. And so we're not poisoning people or children with chemicals, though that's happening. Sure. We're poisoning them with violence, which makes it impossible for them to make choices that are humane. Wow. Because you can't, you can't. It's, the, it's, it's a type of conditioning. I understand that it's not intentional for the most part, sure. but because I taste all of this violence all the time, yeah. food sovereignty is paramount. It's always at the foundation of my work. To me, you can't do beautiful work if there's violence involved. Hmm. You can't. If it's inhumane, you have lost your position to be able to communicate beauty. Wow. Again, I'm drawn back to communion because right there in the midst of that consecrating of the meal, Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. And at the heart of that is this sacrifice, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there is in the midst of communion also this acknowledgement of deep, deep violence mm. at the same time that there is this consecrating, this blessing, this sharing, this transformative process. I don't know what to do with that, but it just, it's part of it. It is. That's really, it's quite so beautiful. Mm. And I, 
I think the beauty in that lies in the, it's the sacrifice, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which I do think comes back to a particular kind of pain. Mm -hmm. And when one is willing to make those sacrifices, there is a pain, but we think pain hurts, but it's really the attachment to us not wanting to experience pain that Mm. hurts. Pain is just pain. Mm. And I don't know that story very well. I was not raised as a Christian, but when you talk about it, it sounds like being a mother to me. (laughs) It strikes me that there's the question of willingness and sacrifice. Yes, absolutely. Well, because it isn't a sacrifice if you aren't willing. And you have to be fully willing. Yeah. It's a full acceptance in the breaking. That I guess that relationship to food security, really, food sovereignty and what that means. I mean, honestly, we don't need to eat as much as we eat as a Mm. society. So there's that. Um, If we could treat everything we ate as the bread and blood of Christ, wow, we would be much more selective, wouldn't we? And yeah. wouldn't it be so much more rewarding? It's finding the sacredness in the everyday. Mm-hmm. Taria, if you had advice for people who are listening, something that maybe it's something that our conversation has sparked, or maybe it's a well that you return to again and again, something about your experience that you could convey to others, what would it be? I have a saying that I share with people a lot in all things seek beauty create beauty, and be beauty. And I think that that for me, that's the way I live. And when we're choosing to live that way, we really cause a lot less harm in the world. And ultimately, that's the goal, right, is to not take more than we give and to try and reduce the harmful impact we have on the world around us and taste more. <laughs> when you eat, really taste what it is that you're eating. You will find such an incredible world. And if you don't, you're eating the wrong food. Taria Camarino, thank you for being on AIJCast. Thank you. This was wonderful. Taria Camarino on AIJCast. You can connect with her online at Instagram, where her handle is love never dies naturally. And by the way, there's a period between each of the words, so it's love.never.dies.naturally. On our next episode, educator and visual artist Johanna Juncker. AIJCast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. We can only do what we do because of that support. So please do take just a moment and go to our website, AIJCast.com, and click on the link that says support. And we love to interact with you on social media. We are there on a number of platforms where our handle is shockingly AIJCast. Our theme music comes from our house band, Mard Fame. And we are engineered, mixed, and produced by the very tattooed Al Mudif, who loves to make me do multiple takes of the AIJ cast outro. Do it again and again and again. And I'm your host, Martha Sanders, encouraging you to go, rather stay put, create some beauty of your own, and remember that the world isn't truly beautiful until it's beautiful for all. Until next time, justice and peace. Peace.